I'm Alex Marlowe, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. We begin today with an unfortunate report that coronavirus restrictions are coming back in our cities, even though they're being removed at our border. Elon Musk is the star of a new Chinese propaganda campaign. His tech is the key to their space program, and perhaps other things. And we believe we may have cracked the code that explains why Disney is going so woke when it comes to grooming children into the trans cult. And we report a shocking slate of headlines that confirm our nation's woke panic is actually accelerating. Scary stuff in the opening of the show. And finally, we address the Biden administration's new obsession, ghost guns. We explain what they are, why Big Joey's focused on them, because it gets the Democrats off the hook for their crime waves, and why you should care, or actually why you shouldn't care. Our first guest today is Breitbart News International Editor, Frances Martell. Come for her news and analysis of the world and stay for a session of roasting of Dr. Oz, the Turkish citizen and New Jersey resident who's vying to be the Republican nominee for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. Then Brandon Darby, our Border and Cartel Chronicles director, gives us the latest details on the illegal immigration surge at our southern border. Spoiler alert, things aren't going as well for the side that actually believes in borders. All that to come on the show, but first, a word from our sponsors. Um, but let's begin with a Philadelphia story that they're going to restore indoor mask mandates as cases are on the rise. Now, cases barely faded. And this is one of these things where the media, of course, decided that coronavirus was fading because they thought it might be favorable for polls. Um, but there was a lot of anticipation that the dreaded midtermicron variant was going to come around just to make sure that all the cheap by mail rules are in place, which is the Democrats' best chance at saving face in the election that's coming up, which is already pretty slim, even though, of course, there'll be a fair bit of cheating that does take place. But it does. Um, uh, this is something that we'd all thought might be coming. And now it is starting to come back. But the fact that the reviving the mass, which never really worked, never really worked at all. Uh, is pretty remarkable that this is the approach. And it just makes you think about how bubbled so many of our cities are. The people that run our cities have almost no diversity of opinion. It, it must be clear that even the medical people are intimidated into silence because I just don't see the slightest bit of evidence that the paper masks and the cloth masks uh, did anything and the N95 mass and the KN95 mass are still typically filthy and not worn properly and uh, there's uh, they're, they're they're not emphasized and even those have their own risks if you wear them all the time not to mention they're incredibly unpleasant particularly the regular American standard N95s um, but this is what's happening it's coming back and I think it makes the whole system seem uh, less credible all of you uh, know that and probably the vast majority of you agree and I just don't know why people want to cover their face for their uh, their whole lives. We know that it's hurting kids' development. We know that uh, it makes so many of us uncomfortable. I just think that this pull towards wanting to be subservient to the totalitarians and wanting to be the subservient to this virus is just very strong in some of these Democrat areas. And I hope it is a, a warning sign to many of you that freedom is not the default. 
It is not. It has to. It's a value that is taught. It is a value that must be fought for, as Ronald Reagan talked about. And we're not going to preserve it if we just feel content to go along and get along. Um, there should be proposals. I'm not proposals. There should be. I'm sure there should be some proposals too. No, but there there should, there should be some protests. People should stand up uh, if you're in Philadelphia, and you should come up with some way to rally and to get the word out. But they're the first major U.S. city to reinstate indoor mask mandates. And I'll tell you, I bet you, Eric Adams in New York. I bet you, Eric Garcetti in L.A. I bet they're London Breed in Chicago, in San Francisco. Uh, I bet they were all sitting around thinking, "Dang, that could have been me. I could have been the one that brought the mask back." So uh, it will, I think, be not the last, um, but it will be the first of a new round of people slowing down. As I've been noting in my personal life, I've been observing more and more people put the mask back on. Um, I had a conversation with my mother who teaches uh, amateur acting sometimes, and she was at a workshop in her neck of the woods. Uh, where uh, students were, uh, some of them all had their masks on on stage, uh, young people who've never been particularly vulnerable to the virus, um, all of them free to get their shots if they want to get their shots, and uh, still just going to spend their lives in masks. It is the acceptance of the disinformation also is disturbing. It's the, where is the rebelliousness? Where are the people who are standing up to authority, questioning authority? Uh, I, when I grew up, I'm, and I'm in my mid-30s, it was at the end, I guess, of a time where questioning authority was considered cool. Now I guess it is considered cool just to roll over and accept every stupid thing the authorities tell you. So is it stupid? Is it evil? Is it both? It's somewhere in there. I don't know for sure where it is, but I'll tell you it's upsetting and will be the beginning of a trend. Here is one that is potentially good, but I want to be cautious of this. So uh, Mark Zuckerberg has announced, according to the Associated Press, see Newswire, that the nonprofit that he runs that distributed about $350 million in donations from, uh, uh, from him uh, in 2020 in order to have COVID-related voter safety. But as we knew at the time, and as now we know clearer than ever, thanks to Dave Bossie's documentary that's out now, since we know that is ostensibly uh, for his rig documentary uh, that we talked about in great detail in the show, we know that he was actually just trying to get out the vote in Democrat areas and might have made exactly the difference teaming with David Plouffe, Obama campaign advisor and others other Obama alumni, putting them in charge of one of the most sacred things you can do as an American citizen, which is cast a vote, particularly for president. Well, it looks like apparently he's not going to be distributing all that money. The AP writes the nonprofit that distributed most of the 350 million donations from Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg to election officials in 2020 said Monday that it won't disperse similar donations this year after backlash from conservatives, suspicious that he, his contributions tilted the outcome to the presidential race toward Joe Biden. Instead, the Center for Technology and Civic Life, which is the centerpiece of the Bossy documentary, is launching a different program dubbed the U.S. Alliance for Election Excellence 
The $80 million five-year effort is intended to create a network for the nation's thousands of local election officials who can apply for aid to improve the technology and process. So cutting the $350 million in one year to $80 million over five years, still only one presidential race comes up in that time. So the way I framed it, the front page of Breitbart, I never trust the stuff when places like the AP puts it out, is miracle or head fake. So we got to be vigilant here. But certainly I wasn't unhappy to see this headline come across my desk. But uh, you can go to citizensunited.com or rig2020.com if you want to check out Bossy's documentary. But of course, we wrote about this over and over and over again at Breitbart. I covered it in Breaking the News. It, it is something that, without a doubt, made a big difference in the election. And Zuckerberg is probably a little bit upset that he's being framed by the right as a villain here because he has taken the approach that he's willing to do business with some conservatives. He has to fend off woke millennials. Um, he does have a censorious side. He's clearly a Democrat, or at least advances Democrat causes. But he has not been entirely hostile to conservatives all the time. Case in point 2016, where there is an, a lot of pressure for him to censor more conservative content, he didn't do it. Now, Zuckerberg, not a good guy. And I think he does not help people like me in this audience. I think he makes our lives difficult. But I do think overall, he's not looking to be a purely left-wing guy. I don't think he sees himself in that way. I think he sees himself as above that, bigger than that. And if he's being framed, as he has been, as a typical Democrat partisan, uh, and I think it's been pretty effective now. I think we were all, I, I think the bossy documentary might have sealed the deal on that. Um then maybe it's time for him to say, okay, th this, is, this is ridiculous. This is not what I'm here to do. I'm here to have make billions and billions of dollars and have a lot of power and live in a world that is post-political, which is pie in the sky, but I do think that's how he sees himself. So perhaps some good news there. Uh, we've been trying to sort out what's going on with the latest trans and grooming and gender obsession that we're witnessing in the United States right now, which is just beyond belief. Uh, we had footage up yesterday of teachers in the Boston area telling kindergartners when babies are born, doctors guess whether the baby is a boy or a girl. This is from the now pretty famous libs of TikTok Twitter account where they uh, follow tw the worst leftist craziness posted to TikTok and they post it on Twitter. Anyway, the point is, is that uh, it's, they, they catch a lot of uh, wokeness that goes on and they feature someone apparently named Ray Schuyler, who's apparently a first grade teacher. Uh, and in the quote, they say, so something that's really cool and unique about who I am is I'm transgender, apparently telling four and five-year-olds. So when babies are born, the doctor looks at them and they make a guess about whether the baby's a boy or a girl based on what they look like. Not their chromosomes. Not whether or not they have genitals that are male or female. They're just making a guess. Most of the time, the guess is 100% correct. There's no issues whatsoever, but sometimes the doctor's wrong. The doctor makes an incorrect guess. It's interesting that we do, we're now questioning authority on uh, whether or not a boy can have a vagina and a girl can have a penis. Because remember, Dr. Oz, hey, Republican, Republican in Pennsylvania. 
he says that kids can be born transgender, which isn't even the nomenclature that the trans community uses. And that when they're eight years old, you can have a penis, but still know you're a girl. You know you're a girl. You should be referred to as a she. That's now a, a mainstream Republican viewpoint, at least according to Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, who some of you called in and defended as a re Republican candidate yesterday. Okay. So we've been trying to figure out why Disney is so into this, why Disney is the, the group that's fighting back the hardest um, against the common sense bill that Ron DeSantis put forward that says that if you're going to indoctrinate the kids, groom the kids, but if you're going to indoctrinate them into the trans mania that we're in, you got to wait until they're at least nine or 10. And you can't have kids who, you can't talk behind the kids' backs, I'm sorry, behind the parents' back at school about sex and sexual orientation with kids who are nine and under. That's the rule. No talking about a gender identity behind the parents' back at school until the kids are at least nine. That's the bill. And Disney has been the group that's fought back as this is the greatest outrage of all time. And this is, it's interesting to see the Disney family might be part of this. It might not just be some of the woke millennials. Abigail Disney, the great niece of Walt Disney, was on CNN over the weekend and called laws protecting children from being groomed in the classroom absurd in an attempt to push history backwards. What do you all think of that? That if you set up a rule that the, you can't talk about sex and sexual orientation in the school until the kids are nine, that's moving backwards, leaving that to the parents, but only until, you know, the fourth grade. That is, that's moving backwards. Charlie Cora, who is an heiress to, the, to uh, Disney, the Disney family, the great-grandchild of Roy Disney, who co-founded Disney with Walt Disney, is come out as a trans person and has, get this, are you sitting down? Come out against the Florida parental rights in education law. Amazing. Charlie Core had identified a gay, but now is out. Is a high school teacher apparently also. So Disney heiress is now a bro according to her. Very confusing. I'm confused by it. That's the whole point. They, they, they like it. I got to keep up with like which one is what they really are. But anyway, equality matters deeply to us. This is the message that there are people who are being treated unequal if they don't want their children to get indoctrinated until they're 10. There's so many false constructs. There, no one addresses the centerpiece of this. We're talking about young kids, sexualization of young kids behind their parents' back. So, and the left freakout continues on some of this stuff. The lead story right now, if you go to Breitbart.com, um, if you listen to the live show, is that the left rage at Tony Dungy, the legendary football coach, deeply committed Christian, for standing next to Governor DeSantis as DeSantis put forward a fatherhood bill. So late Monday, DeSantis signed a $70 million initiative that's reportedly aimed to provide resources for educational and mentorship programs to help children, fathers, and families in the state through the Department of Juvenile Justice and the Department of Children and Families. 
Seems pretty simple. Wants to help out parents. Wants to help out dads. Wants to encourage the nuclear family if possible. And of course, online, people raged that this was some sort of form of bigotry. So a lot of the online left, MSNBC personalities, stuff like that. The worst one was someone I wasn't familiar with, but she has a blue check on Twitter. Her name is Pam Keith Esquire, the CEO of the Center for Employment Justice, LLC. And I think she ran for Congress. Um, and she tweeted, I used to feel bad for Tony Dungy and I don't anymore. And that rang a bell where Tony Dungy had a child, he's many children, uh, who committed suicide. I'm guessing that's what she was referencing. Guessing if she reaches out, she's probably not going to reply. Maybe I should. But I'm guessing she felt bad because Dungy lost a kid and then now that he's standing next to Ron DeSantis, now take it back. Where's her humanity? Totally lost it. But you can read the meltdown tweets at Breitbart News. They're informative. Twitter's very helpful in that way. It's one of the few ways I find Twitter helpful is to get the leftist rage tweet that they don't think about. When encourage fatherhood, hey, you're canceled. Uh, you can't help but think of all these stories in a row and not be shocked that only uh, 7% believe the nation is doing very well under Joe Biden. MSNBC's Jason Johnson, who's maybe their most hysterical commentator, which is saying something because Joy Reid is on the network, and Tiffany Cross. But he's a political uh, professor. And he said on The Beat, which is Ari Melber's show, who is actually not one of the worst guys, even though he's not great on MSNBC, said that the MAGA movement is a terrorist organization. A terrorist organization. So you guys are all terrorists, those of you who are part of MAGA. That's what we're talking about our fellow citizens. Because why? Because we like closed border and we don't like uh, six-year-olds being taught that they could be gender queer plus 2S ampersand without our parents at least being able to weigh in. And the Disney family is the tip of the spear. And kindergartners are being confused with all this junk about uh, the doctor wings it when they're picking whether or not uh, you're a boy or a girl where they're announcing it. Um, I might have mentioned in a few weeks ago that Oberlin College is supposed to pay $33 million in damages to a bakery that it slandered racist, which it was not racist, and they won't pay. So Oberlin College, I'm sure, can afford it. Very a wealthy institution, private school in Ohio. And a court ordered they have to pay the Gibson Bakery $33 million for defamation. I think we had the attorney on, correct? That's what we did. 2019, college's dean of students orchestrate a woke mob into slandering the family as racist, Paul Bois writes for us at Breitbart, for calling the police on three black students for shoplifting a bottle of wine. The money was to be paid back by April 1. Hey, that passed. And the college has refused to pay. Wow. Interesting. Not to mention the majority of voters are now blaming Joe Biden for the worsening illegal alien crisis. The country's in trouble. We need to start getting very focused here because you're seeing real uh, cracks, I think, in the system. Some of them I don't fully hate, like the continuing degradation of our, uh, 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 not just secondary schools, but our uh, collegiate system. 
academia is just melting down in front of our eyes. University of Buffalo students hunted down someone. A woke mob hunted down one student because why? The student wanted to host Alan West on campus. Buffalo student described the moment she was hunted down by a woke mob, Alana Mastriangelo writes for the Breitbart, screaming no justice, no peace because she invited Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. She was His topic, America is not racist and why American values are exceptional. Whew, that sounds bad. How dare you, successful, accomplished, black American, say that America is not racist. University of Buffalo student Teresa Purcell was uh, accosted by the mob, and there's video of it up at brightbird.com. Yeah, you should not be paying to send your kids to these places. But are, are there, there seems to be so few exceptions. Hillsdale's an exception. Uh, we have a story on the front page at Breitbart Now. Now, Hillsdale's expanding their charter school curriculum, their charter school, school network that they have, trying to expand beyond higher education and into secondary schools in primary schools. That's good. But there's so few bright spots. Commonality, the a student getting chased down for bringing a black man to campus who uh, thinks for himself, Alan West, and Tony Dungy, who is a black man, getting attacked online, getting smeared because he stood next to Ron DeSantis on a pro-fatherhood bill. Where's the unifier? I want my unity, Big Joey. Someone get Big Joey and see if he can call uh, in the show talk about unity. All right, we're keeping an eye on uh, whether Elon Musk is going to save Twitter. Uh, a lot of people in the Musk camp were very excited that he is not joining the Twitter board because now he can do more, can do a hostile takeover, can buy more shares. Uh, in the meantime, Musk is actually starring in a Chinese embassy event on space exploration. How wild is that? So as I've stated over and over again, that both Tesla and SpaceX have deep connections to the uh, CCP. In a recent Chinese embassy event focused on the future of space exploration, heavily featuring Tesla and SpaceX CEO Elon Musk, who's dramatically increased his production of electric vehicles in the communist country. This is Lucas Nolan of Breitbart, who writes that the South China Morning Post reports that Musk was a key feature of a recent event at Beijing's embassy in Washington, D.C. that focused on space exploration. Musk reportedly pre-recorded a segment about space travel, which was played on three large screens with audience of school children, their parents and teachers, embassy staff and journalists. Now, I'm not saying for sure that Musk won't turn into some sort of a big free speech warrior and we're not going to get a, he's not going to save Twitter for us. But he's previously said he loves China and he got less tough on China as China became more open. And he has not just a huge factory there in Shanghai, which is shuttered right now due to coronavirus issues, which Chinese likely created in Chinese lab, but he's got a design facility now. He says China rocks. And just wondering when all of a sudden we're going to get our uh, big free speech guy, big freedom guy. I just don't get how the United States wants Musk to work on our military tech when he's just close with China. It's just something, it's not a joke. It's, not a, it's one of these things where uh, he's a media figure and it's amusing when he gets attention and changes the conversation. 
but he is a guy who is creating technology for the United States military at this time. And he's also working close with China and anything that's technology related that is done in China, the CCP will review it, have access to it and use it for their military. And they won't tell you they're doing that. That's what Peter Schweitzer revealed in his book, Red Handed, which you all should pick up if you haven't already. There's a really interesting story over CNBC where Tesla returns were supposed to be easy, but one customer has been waiting for two years for a Model X refund. $116,000 vehicle bought in 2020 when you, they had a policy, if you don't like it, you can bring it back in seven days. And a guy named Danny Roman bought one, brought it back. It was a no questions asked policy. It's continued to make payments on it. And uh, his account has not been closed out and he has been refunded. So he's got a lawsuit going on. See how it goes. Again, I hope I'm wrong on Musk. It'd be great if I was. It would be great if he turns out to be some sort of incredible hero. So, but uh, I'm not seeing it yet. I'm not there. Not in the Musk camp yet. So Joe Biden's trying to change the subject to something called ghost guns. Um, he is now on a new gun control kick. Uh, I definitely did not want to open the show with it because I think that's what the Joey camp wants, but I will address it because it will be a top conversation. So let's play cut three, please, Haley. If you commit a crime with a ghost gun, expect federal prosecution. Not just state, expect federal prosecution. Yeah, a ghost gun is a, a gun that I guess is not registered because you built it yourself. So the government wants to keep track of all the guns, the serial numbers. And if you're building a gun with parts that you got on your own, then you might not have a serial number, which means you can't be tracked by the government. Uh, for me, I, it just seems pretty clear cut in the Second Amendment that this should be illegal. I'm sure this will all get sorted out over time. But they are uh, a, a he, this is another effort to have some sort of an assault weapons ban by another name and lead to universal background checks. But it's got a cool, sexy name, ghost guns. We don't like ghost guns. Let's play some more, cut four. For funding strategy, we know reduce gun crime, community policing and community violence interruption. Look, I've said it many times, the answer is not to defund the police, it's to fund the police and give them the tools and training to support they need to be better partners okay, and protectors of our community. Oh, okay, that, that's, that's way too late in the game. It's the, their city's already in chaos. It's his fault, the bunch of Democrats, they all rolled over to AOC and Rashida Tlaib, and he deserves almost no credit for this. Uh, let's go to cut five. Law enforcement is sounding the alarm. Our communities are paying the price we're acting today, the United States Department of Justice is making it illegal for a business to manufacture one of these kits without a serial number. Illegal. Illegal for a licensed gun dealer to sell them without a background check. And starting today, weapons like the one used in Saugus High School and to ambush deputies with us to, that are here with us today are being treated like the deadly firearms they are. And if somebody sells a ghost gun to a federally licensed dealer, for example, a pawn shop, that dealer must make the firearm and mark it with a serial number before reselling it. All of a sudden, 
It's no longer a ghost. It has a return address. And it's going to help save lives, reduce crime, and get more criminals off the streets. All right, go on. Cut six. Folks, a felon, a terrorist, a domestic abuser can go from a gun kit to a gun as little as 30 minutes. Buyers aren't required to pass background checks because guns have no serial numbers, these guns. When they show up at a crime scene, they can't be traced. Harder to find and prove who used them. Meaning you can't connect the gun to the shooter and hold them accountable. Right. So the point is he's trying to make it so that the government can just track more weapons. You can't modify stuff on your own. And it's just all slippery slope to me. It's the some of this stuff, I guess, makes some some sense in a vacuum. But the, the gun laws never exist in a vacuum. And his focus on this is, of course, designed to change the topic, trying to find something that seems sort of commonsensical. So then he can get mad at anyone who stands in the way of it. Um, but this is the path towards universal background checks. This is the path towards the government as a database, a registry of who's got guns and who doesn't. This just seems like any sort of modification you make, all of a sudden it'll be a ghost gun. Anything you want to do to your own gun, anything that a gun hobbyist might do, uh, that if you are not a registered with the government, then it's going to become illegal if this isn't already the case with this initial law. So there's a lot of gun control that is on the table for Democrats. They would love to make this the, the conversation. And I think that this is, uh, I, I would rather them focus on other stuff like not uh, ruining our cities right now. It's just me. But this is where they're trying to move the conversation. First guest today is Frances Martell, as I often know, maybe the most requested guest in the Breitbart family. She knows so much about so many areas of the world and always gives a interesting and bold take on what all of it means. Uh, we cover some obscure stories, some essential stories, and always surprising and informative when she's on. Let's hear it. Frances, great to have you on. She's our international editor at Breitbart News, our world editor. She covers the majority of the planet with us. But I will ask you the burning question we all have. Are you excited about the local boy making good Dr. Oz set to be the next senator from Pennsylvania, though he's a New Jerseyan? I'm I'm not from Turkey. I'm not excited about this. (laughs) That is funny. I guess Turkey's Oz country. No, it's a, but, but seriously, though, do you find it a bit odd that a Turkish citizen is running as a Republican for a Senate in a state he doesn't live in and who served in the Turkish military, not the American military, and will only renounce his Turkish citizenship if he wins? And we, have, we don't really know for sure he'll do that. That's all he said. It, 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 it is, this is the sort of thing where if someone just tuning in and hadn't listened to the show for a few weeks, they, they would think I'm making this up. But this is really happening. Yes, and it's so confusing, and the deeper you go into it, I mean, I'm looking at this from the perspective of someone that covers Turkey, not that covers U.S. politics. So for me, Pennsylvania, I think of Fethullah Gulen, who is 
the cleric exiled there who Erdogan blames for um, the coup in 2016, the failed coup. And he's, sure. Erdogan's been trying to get this guy extradited for years and years and years. No government will do it because there's no evidence that this guy really had anything to do with the coup. And now someone who, you know, I've seen smiling and laughing in photos with Erdogan is running for Senate seemingly randomly in the state that Gulen lives. So, um, you know, I'm not accusing him of anything, but I, I find that strange. And that was the first place my mind went. Oh, there is uh, numerous pictures of Oz and Erdogan, by the way, online. Not hard to find those. Uh, but but what is a what, explain to people who Erdogan is for those who are unfamiliar? Sure. He's the president of Turkey. He is a hardcore Islamist. He's someone that's made numerous anti-Semitic comments uh, in his time. He's been very explicit about wanting to unite the Muslim world against the West. And he gets to run a NATO country, which is <laughs> very fun. Um, but he's absolutely an authoritarian. He's rigged several elections to stay in power. Um, he's shut down hundreds of media outlets in Turkey. Uh, he's arrested many of his political opponents. This is not a democratic leader. This is not someone that, uh, you know, if I was a talk show host, I would want to be friendly with in any way. Um, and it's off-putting because he's also openly an enemy of the United States, even though he gets to run a NATO country. Um, and he's kind of openly said he's he doesn't like that Turkey has gone so westward. He's gone as far as um, criticizing Ataturk, who is the founder of the Republic of Turkey, and it's actually illegal to criticize Ataturk in Turkey, but if you're the president, you can do whatever you want. Um, and he's uh, attacked him for secularism and for separating Turkey from basically the Arab Muslim world. Um, so that's that's who we're talking about here. So do you find it suspect that someone who's a dual citizen with Turkey and says he will only renounce his connection to all foreign powers if he wins? Uh, how, how is this something that people are comfortable with? I mean, it just seems like something that's being forced upon us. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not sure anyone is comfortable with this except for Dr. Oz. Um, I, I haven't seen a single person say this is okay. Um, I know I would, and it's not about him being Turkish, by the way. If, if, you know, Marco Rubio had Cuban citizenship and he didn't want to renounce it, I, as a Cuban, would be uncomfortable with that. Um, wow. It's absolutely not about which country it is. It's about the strangeness of, you know, you want to serve the, the American people, you want to be part of the American government, and yet you won't renounce, you know, your citizenship because of very, you know, strange ties. And again, I go back to those photos smiling and laughing with Erdogan. Like, it's not just about your love of country. You've clearly shown affection for its dictator. So that's a big problem. Uh, it's quite it's quite a problem. And it's Cantor Freedom, who's been a leading light in terms of really one of the uh, true uh, the civil rights uh, icons of our time. It said that Dr. Oz in the pocket of Erdogan. What's his evidence of that? Um, he really just has those photos. I mean, uh, Cantor hasn't really put out uh, a detailed attack on Dr. Oz. He's just sort of called him an agent of the Turkish state without elaborating, um, but it is because um, Dr. Oz has met with Erdogan, has hung out with his family. Um, he, f he was featured in Turkish propaganda. Um, he went to Turkey to um, work with Syrian refugees and, and help them with their health problems a few years back. And he essentially said, if you read those old articles, that 
Turkey, you know, Erdogan's Turkey is the only hope that these refugees have, and he praised the government. Um, so it's, you know, it's not just about praising Turkey as, as a state and its people. It's about you were featured in propaganda for Erdogan. Um, so that evidence is there. Um, and important to note, you know, Cantor Freedom is a group. Um, so he's, you know, he's part of the movement that Erdogan has actively suppressed, that whose founder is based in Pennsylvania. Yeah, interesting. And I'm, I, I just am excited for the state of Pennsylvania. I mean, how could they get so lucky? Francis, are you are you going to be are you going to be a little jealous when Oz has to leave New Jersey at least part time to go uh, be senator for Pennsylvania? Um, a little bit. I mean, I'm jealous of the drama, you know. No one thinks Pennsylvania has more drama than New Jersey. That's just not not our reputation. So, um, I, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll beat them uh, soon with some sort of um, abysmal political scandal. But uh, for right now, it seems like they're winning, which is no good. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just, I, I find it to be endlessly amusing. As the audience can tell, who's been listening all morning. Okay, let's try to catch up on the rest of the world. And I do appreciate you indulging me on this. I knew you'd have some interesting thoughts on it. But um, let's start with China and, and Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan, as uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan has been ousted, he's one of the weirdest guys on the world stage, period. I want you to remind us of who he is and who replaced him. And uh, China says that uh, Pakistan ties remain friendly. What does that mean? Give us all the details. Sure. Um, so Imran Khan, for my money, was the craziest head of government in any country in the world. Um, he openly came out and praised Osama bin Laden as a martyr while he was prime minister. Um, he was very openly Islamist, used the United Nations to try to promote a global blasphemy law um, so that if you or I or anyone anywhere in the world said anything that offended any Muslim anywhere in the world, um, there would be criminal repercussions for what we said. Um, he wanted that to be a, a global law. Um, and since Pakistan uh, was for a time on the Human Rights Council at the UN, they used that power to get a resolution through the General Assembly um, against Islamophobia, um, which was, you know, a, it, Khan tried to use that as a stepping stone towards a global blasphemy law. Um, so this guy was really, really out there, and I think representative of a lot of voters in Pakistan, unfortunately. That, that sort of crazy jihadist kind of thinking is, is not rare in Pakistan. We see mobs all the time um, against things like, you know, a Christian was accused of desecrating a Quran, so you see thousands of people, you know, rioting. It's, it's not rare. Um, so he was removed by basically the establishment. The other part of Khan's whole political persona is he was an outsider. Um, he was a former cricketer. Uh, that's the, the craziest part of all this is that he was very much embraced by the West when he was young as a cricketer. And, you know, he was a celebrity in Britain. Um, and then he grew up to be this, you know, fundamentalist, essentially. Um, but he was ousted by uh, establishment powers. Um, the Sharif family, which had control um, before Khan, uh, Nawaz Sharif was the prime minister before Khan. Um, Nawaz Sharif's brother, Shabazz Sharif, is now the prime minister. Um, and those forces have come in and they've basically said, you know, Sharif himself has said, I want to go back to uh, less 
crazy and antagonistic politics. Um, he wants to uh, settle relations with the United States. Khan was very, very anti-American. Um, like I said, praised Osama bin Laden. Um, so he, Sharif wants to undo the damage from that belligerence, but I don't think he wants to actually change anything substantive. And he has been very, very vocal in saying that he doesn't want to um, undo the good things that Khan did in terms of improving ties to China. And one of the things Khan did, by the way, that's very important to note, despite being a very vocal Islamist, he endorsed the genocide of the Uyghur Muslims in China. He straight up said that he supported what China was doing. Um, so I don't think that the Sharif government is going to change that stance. They have too much money to lose by doing so. Um, but that was really the, the single most hypocritical thing about Khan. And, you know, we're going to see if the more, quote unquote, moderate government um, sticks to that line. Uh, do you think that the government will end up being more moderate? And if so, what would that uh, what how would that affect the United States, if at all? I think they're going to try to be more superficially moderate. I think, like I said, there's not going to be any praise for Osama bin Laden. There's not going to be any um, sort of su vocal support for the Taliban. There's not going to be anything that's offensive to us verbally. And I think what the objective of that is, is to get America to invest more in Pakistan. Um, the, the gig under Nawaz Sharif, the former prime minister, was for Pakistan to say, we want to get rid of terrorist elements. We want to be a... Um, stable and functional country, but we need a lot of money to do that. And, you know, under former presidents, um, particularly Barack Obama, um, we bought that and we invested in Pakistan. And of course, that that went nowhere um, in terms of making the country more functional or moderate. Um, but I, I think that's what it's going to be. It's just going to be a change in tone. And, um, you know, we'll see if Biden buys into it. I don't see why he wouldn't. Um, let's turn now to the UN, which is under pressure to expel China and Cuba from their Human Rights Council after Russia has been pushed out. Break this one down for us. Sure. Um, so uh, I, I would commend the UN for expelling Russia from the Human Rights Council. They have no place there. They're a human rights sure, violator. Of yeah, but they are, you know, they're not even the worst offender on the council. The the point of the Human Rights Council is supposed to be to um, establish some sort of global accountability for countries that commit human rights abuses. And then the people on the Human Rights Council are the world's worst human rights abusers. China's on there, Cuba, Venezuela, Qatar, Libya, which is the heart of global slave trade. Um, you know, you look at that list, and it's uh, Kazakhstan, which just had massive violent repression of dissidents. Um, no one on that, very few countries on, on that council actually legitimize the objective of the council. And so if you really want to clean house over there, um, Russia was one of the uh, lower profile countries that really need to go. I mean, China is openly committing genocide, openly justifying it, um, and gets to be on the council and gets to vote against kicking Russia out. Um, so that that's a big problem, and there are a few voices calling for um, votes to expel China and, and the other rights violators, but it really is too few voices. Um, and, and it is kind of crazy that we just let it slide as, as a global community. 
Uh, sure, but we've always done this. And so this is one of these things where when bad ideas get entrenched for so long, we never come off of them. I mean, maybe there is something here that's going on with people feeling like they have to confront Russia's or bad behavior, maybe that does propel us to examine other countries like Cuba or Venezuela or China. And maybe there's something productive that we could get uh, out of this, but is th that takes some effort. And the world community does seem to be pretty lazy about this stuff. That's, that's exactly it. It's pure laziness. And I think a lot of the animosity towards Russia because of the Ukraine war is good faith. I think that the average person who might change their, you know, Facebook profile to a Ukrainian flag picture is not, you know, doing it in, in bad faith. They think that this is the worst thing of their time. And there's a lack of education because you turn on, you know, corporate cable news and you don't see any Uyghurs. You don't, you know, you don't see anything about China's genocide. No one educates the American public except for people like us that Cuba and Venezuela, which are on the Human Rights Council, are Russian proxy states. Um, the Castro family and Nicolás Maduro would simply not be in power if Putin hadn't directly invested in them being in power. So Russia is kind of still on the council through these two governments, um, which, by the way, are both on the Caribbean. So if you want to fight Russia, there's, you know, there's a Russian proxy state 90 miles away that we could deal with. And that's not part of the conversation because the American public isn't being educated about how that works. And so I, I think that's it's partly lazy on the part of the people who know better. And then the vast majority of people who feel compelled um, to confront Russia about their human rights violations, I think they don't totally understand um, how to do that and that there are, there are better ways to do that and that Russia has these critical allies that we should be confronting um, that overtly seem to have nothing to do with the situation. Well, but when Dr. Oz becomes Secretary of State, do you believe that this will be our way to shake up the world community in a major way? I mean, we could have a teletown hall with him. He could wear his scrubs. Um, I, I just I just think that this is just what the world needs right now. Uh, let's turn to Shanghai, which is, you know, modern city, the four times the size or three times the size of New York City, the, the economic center of all of China. Residents trapped in lockdown, screaming from their windows, according to videos. They're fighting over limited food, food shortages. It's something that, again, China under the communist control, it says so much about communism. But I'm just afraid that we emulate China so much these days that who's to say that this isn't something that we should consider as possible here sometime in the not too distant future? Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I wasn't in New York City in 2020, but I was close enough and I have friends and hearing about, you know, the the food shortages and stuff in Shanghai, it never got that bad in New York, but uh, de Blasio certainly did try. <laughs> so it's not, you know, untold. And I think the worst part of all this is I think the Chinese government agrees. And I think part of this horrendous display that they're doing with Shanghai, their wealthiest, biggest city is to tell the West, you know, there's no, there's no too big to be locked down. There's no too wealthy or privileged to be locked down. And I think it's trying to create some pressure on Western countries to stop um, what they've started to do in, in recent weeks, which is, you know, act rationally against the, the Omicron variant, which we have plenty of evidence that, you know, a full lockdown isn't totally necessary, especially given that we have all these tools. You know, we have... 
we understand social distancing, washing your hands, we have vaccines. Like, it's not where we were in March 2020, and uh, the Chinese government is trying really hard to convince us that, no, it really is exactly the same as before we had vaccines, and we have to lock everyone down. Yeah, it's frightening, and it seems like some of it is designed to send a message to the West that the West seems to be internalizing. Uh, Dr. Fauci is suggesting a fourth coronavirus shot is necessary. We've got masks coming back in Philadelphia. Um, are we, for instance, I know this isn't necessarily your beat, but is the, uh, are there, you see any signs in other parts of the world that the lockdown culture might be returning? You know, that's the interesting thing. It's really only in China, as far as I can tell. Um, there's, I'm sure there's parts of Europe that are going to go back to it because um, the Europeans have been probably the most extreme outside of China in terms of locking down. Um, I, I would expect some Western European countries to do it again. But um, right now, it really seems like a lot of the world has moved on. Even countries like Japan and South Korea are slowly easing extremely strict um, uh, government-led regulations. That's another thing. There's a, a clear divide between the government imposing things on you and the general public kind of accepting them. And we are seeing still, you know, in much of Asia, people still wear masks. And they got used to wearing masks in 2003 during SARS. So there's a, a precedent there that isn't present in other parts of the world. Um, but that's kind of very different. You know, you see the pictures and people are wearing masks, but that doesn't necessarily mean the government's going to punish you if you don't. Uh, give us a little more detail on these specific lockdowns. Who's enforcing them? Is there popular support in China for it? Do we have any sense of that, even considering how much they control the media? Um, well, what we do have is a constant deluge of posts on Weibo, Weibo and WeChat, which are the two big social media outlets in China, of people criticizing this and condemning it, and videos of people screaming out their windows and protesting. Um, the videos and the posts seem to go up, and then, you know, 10 minutes later, they're gone. But um, there's a concerted effort by people in the free world to document these and save them before they get deleted. Um, there is there's no popular support for this in China, and I think there is a, a risk of civil unrest because um, a lot of the Chinese population, the people who live comfortably, were okay with this happening to rural people. They were okay with it happening in Jilin province, which is up north by North Korea. Um, you know, they were okay with it happening in the heartland, but now it's in Shanghai. Now it's affecting the elites, you know, and, and that, I think, is starting to really upset people. Um, there were reports this morning that Wuhan is starting to limit, um, for example, you have to have a, a negative uh, coronavirus test before you can use public transportation. So Wuhan might go down again. Um, Guangzhou, which is another major urban center, um, also starting to hoard food to prepare for a lockdown. So um, it looks like they're going to expand the lockdowns in the face of growing um, but obviously limited evidence that the, the people are just not with it. And local Shanghai officials, by the way, also appeared to not be with it. Um, for weeks in late March, the local officials were saying, we're done with lockdowns, we're evolving our approach, and we're going to start doing limited neighborhood-by-neighborhood neighborhood, moderate lockdowns just to test people and then let them go. And then Xi Jinping personally intervened and said, no, we are doing lockdowns, and now we're you know, weeks into this lockdown and people don't have food. Shocking stuff. Um, Francis Martell again, our international editor at Breitbart. Let's turn to where we had to get there eventually. Ukraine and Russia. Uh, it is the, what are the 
key details that in the latest when it comes to Ukraine and Russia. Who's got the upper hand right now? Um, I know there's a lot of fake news going around. Uh, what do you think that the audience needs to hear? Um, well, it seems like most of the fighting in and around Kiev is subdued. Um, it, like that part of the war has shifted. Um, the Russian government itself has said, we're going to focus on eastern Ukraine this time. They've kind of redefined their goal to liberating the Donbass region, which is eastern Ukraine. Um, and that sort of brings us back to the same war we've been having for the past eight years. Um, with the exception that it's hitting big urban centers now that it wasn't hitting for those eight years. So Mariupol, which is a very important port city, is getting uh, really uh, attacked heavily. Um, and there's a lot of concerns for civilians. Um, and now the Ukrainian government is claiming that chemical weapons were used there. We'll see. Okay, I, I want to talk about this. So, so, so these are the Azov Nazis that they saying that Russia used chemical weapons. Uh, do you think that this is a credible claim? I mean, it's a pretty bold claim. Uh, yeah, I mean, th consider the source, right? These are actual Nazis who are fighting the Russians, and they're saying that they were attacked with chemical weapons. The defense ministry now claimed it was phosphorus, but do, do we really know? We have no idea. Um, they have not presented any evidence yet. This is a very new allegation. The Russians are denying it, obviously, and pointing out that the people saying this are Nazis. Um, so it's a, it's a big he said, she said. It's like everything in this war where we have to be very careful taking things into consideration. But um, is it believable? Yes, because Russia has a record of helping out Bashar al-Assad, who used chemical weapons in Syria. So um, both sides are so tainted that it's at this point it's equally possible to believe that russia did use the weapons or that the nazis made this up to to make russia look bad um and i want to ask about how a lot of people who are on the pro-russia pro-putin side of this debate think that actually ukraine and plan to use chemical weapons against russia this just has vibes of the mass weapons of mass destruction narrative that got us into the iraq war which obviously didn't work out uh, according to uh, the warmongers' plans. Oh, what are your thoughts on that narrative, Francis? And the, is there evidence? Um, well, the the evidence is again. There's a past history of Russia using uh, or aiding. Uh, entities who use such weapons and being extremely brutal in the Donbass region, uh, funding uh, proxy fighters there. Um, the, the the proxy fighters in Donbass shot down a commercial airliner, um, you know, in uh, Malaysia Air, Airlines flight. Uh, I forget the number, but um, they, you know, they used a Russian missile to shoot down a commercial plane. So is, are chemical weapons that much worse? I don't think so. Um, and the other thing I'd say about the Iraq situation is, um, sure, it, it ended as a debacle for the United States, but uh, years later, WikiLeaks actually published proof that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And, and everyone ignores that part of the WikiLeaks dumps. You know, we all remember the, the videos of the drone strikes in Afghanistan, and we don't remember that they actually proved there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So um, the, the sheer facts on the table being correct doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good strategy for us to get involved in any of this. And, and I'm not calling for us to get involved in any of this, but um, sure. I would be uh, very uh, careful to take into consideration anyone who's trying to use Iraq as some sort of defense to make Putin look good. 
Yeah, interesting. Uh, let, let me ask you uh, about where you think this is heading in the next few weeks. I, I noticed Zelensky's uh, having some photo shoots, but it seems like there's a really big death toll still. So at least from reports, which none of them are credible. So what is the, the path here? Or is it, or we could be in a prolonged thing, which I guess we've already been in that for years, but this new elevated, escalated um, uh, it, 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 the war could it just go on for years? I think so. I mean, for eight years, the international community signaled that it was completely okay with the war in the Donbass. And it was a brutal war, and a lot of civilians were killed. A lot of civilians were traumatized, injured. And, you know, Western Europe was okay with that. Um, so I think the, the goal right now for the Russians is to bring this back down to a simmer where Western Europe's okay with it, everyone forgets about it, and they can slowly start salami slicing parts of Ukraine off again. Um, obviously, the Ukrainians don't want this. I think the Ukrainians want a, an all-out victory against Russia such that Russia doesn't think about invading anything for another 500 years. Is that going to happen? They don't have the resources to make that happen. So um, I think where we go from here is back to the status quo of last year where you did have a war there. It was an eight-year-old war, and the international community was fine with it. Do you think that we will resolve this before the first, the end of the first Oz administration? <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's interesting because Turkey's playing such a pivotal role here. You know, Erdogan's son-in-law has this drone company that is helping Ukraine mm. out big time. So I'm very curious what President Oz is going to do. Is, is he going to buy some of those Turkish drones? Is he going to send them to Ukraine? Um, I don't know. I can't speculate too much on, on his presidency yet, but. Yeah, and those of you who are doing the math at home, the first Oz administration will come to an end about 10 or 11 years. So just to let you know, that that, that was the time frame. <laughs> and then we'll head towards the uh, second Oz administration. It's going to be... It's going to be an amazing, amazing run for this man, this giant walking among us in New Jersey and running in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Francis, I appreciate you indulging me as always and uh, great reports all around the world. Fritz Martel is our world editor. Read everything she writes and edits at Breitbart News. I'm going to take a break. Be right back. Brandon Darby is up next. He is one of the most important reporters, period, and definitely the most important reporter on border issues, I believe, in the English language at this time, but also in the Spanish language, too. Remember, our Cartel Chronicles initiative is published in both English and Spanish because we do hope to reach people south of our border, just not just north of it, with our coverage. And he gives us exactly what's happening as Title 42 comes off and an illegal immigration surge begins and actually is continuing. All that in the interview. Brandon, give me a sense of where we're at in terms of the immigration crisis. It seems like with the Title 42 coming off, uh, we're going to be seeing a surge. seems like that's what we're getting early indications that's the case. But what are you seeing there on the ground in Texas? Uh, We're definitely seeing a surge. Uh, It's becoming normalized to have so many people uh, showing up at our southern border. And, uh, you know, it's... It's a bit difficult to read the the little bit of mainstream coverage that exists about what occurs at our border right now, um, primarily because 
it seems to be the the argument from I guess legacy media outlets and journalists is that oh this is normal look this many people cross every day it's it's totally normal to have one to two million people show up at our border um, and come in in between ports of entry without without um, you know coming through the gates uh, so we're getting a bit of um, we're seeing a bit of diminishing of our concerns right people saying hey this this isn't a big deal it happens every day um, just because it happens every day doesn't make it not a big deal but it, but it definitely is a big deal uh, when you know if we look back to the Democratic Party's uh, uh, debates with each other when they were vying to become the presidential candidate uh, and what they said which is hey we're going to decriminalize border crossings we're going to make it, we're going to do health care for all, including people who cross our border illicitly. Um, when you make statements like that and you have policies that are aimed at, at making that a reality, uh, it, it encourages people who live in bad places to go ahead and come to, to this place. And that's what we're seeing the results of. Um, what is the reaction from the people who are at the border, border patrol, ICE, who, the, the people who are down there, customs, who are have to somewhat enforce, but I guess not overly enforce our laws down there? Do you have any sense of the morale? Uh, morale is very low. You have, again, you have uh, a situation, we kind of go back to the Obama years, where, um, you know, the majority of what's going on and, and what the men and women of the Border Patrol are going through is not being talked about in the media. Uh, the only time they are talked about is when either one of them does something stupid um, or when they're just doing their job and it's portrayed as something stupid, when it's portrayed as like, oh, they were whipping migrants with whips, which obviously was not the case. Uh, we can all remember that. I'd like to point of people course. back to, to what happened during the Trump years. During the Trump years, uh, reporters began to actually cover what was occurring on the border, and and uh, they were everyone was outraged at these photos of how horrible the migrants were being treated on the border and how horrible everything was on the border. And then they realized that the photos they were upset by were actually from the Obama years. They were 2014 photos that we had published, um, but people had never paid attention to it before. So all of a sudden, it's uh, it's something that is upsetting to them. And, and now we have Biden in office, and most of the newsrooms have reduced their, their border staff. We're not seeing the daily reports from mainstream news outlets about what's occurring, about what migrants go through. Because one of the things that you know people generally avoid uh, discussing um, on television and other legacy outlets is that not only is what's happening at our border bad for us as Americans, um, it's also bad for the migrants. It's really, really bad for the migrants. And not only is it bad for the migrants, but it's bad for all of the people in northern Mexico who, uh, who have cartels vying for their cities, you know, and fighting for their, their turf um, with each other um, because they want, they want control of those corridors where migrants go because it's very profitable. It's, in many cases, more profitable than narcotics. You know, if we look at the Gulf Cartel in southern Texas, they have biz a business model that's largely based on, at least the Reynosa faction, that's largely based on getting migrants to our border. That's what they do. They do that in many years. They make more money from that than drugs, from what we can determine. 
Um, Brandon, and what about the coronavirus? Because the removal of the Title 42 restrictions is because of coronavirus is not seen as the threat that it was, at least south of our border. Though, of course, we're putting masks back on in Pennsylvania. We're getting a fourth vaccine recommended to us by Dr. Fauci. But it is uh, south of the border, I guess, there's not that much coronavirus because that's the, the reason why Title 42 was in place. No, I, I think there is. I think there's, there's um, you know, there, there's still pockets where there's a lot of coronavirus. But the problem, the problem with Title 42, and I, and I, the, the problem with this is that it's it's one of those, you know, fingers in the dikes, right? It's a it's a stopgap measure. It's a, a it was an effort designed to plug a hole that exists, and that hole is our policy. That hole is is U.S. policy. That's something that Congress can do something about and Congress doesn't do something about like the, the reality is this. Okay. We have a system where we're spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year to secure our border, but not really. We have a system where we say, Hey, you can't come here illegally, but not really. You actually can. In fact, we want you to, that is what our system is. Our system is set up to where, you know, if you look at the total number of agricultural workers needed um, needed, uh, you know, just in Texas, right? Um, if, if you look at the amount that are allowed to come legally, well, you know, Todd Staples, a former ag commissioner, a land commissioner, said we need twice that number in Texas alone just for our, our agricultural needs. And so the system itself is set up to, to, for this to continue. The, 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 there's a systemic problem where where we we close the gate, the legal gates, and they're actually not closed, but we close the legal gates uh, to an extent, and then we encourage people to come in between the legal gates. That's what our system does. And, you know, things like Title 42, they're, they're stopgap measures. I understand why the Trump administration uh, put them in place. I, I totally understand that. But they're, they're stopgap measures that really – I guess they kind of mask the underlying problem, which is just our policy. You know, there's push and pull factors. And, and I, I talk about this all the time when it comes to immigration, whether it's illegal immigration or legal immigration, there's push and pull. The push factors are what exists in Central America or wherever else they are. In Ukraine, the push factors are the war, right? That, that is the war. And so people want to leave. And then if you have policies that encourage them to come, which means makes them think that if they come, they'll likely be able to stay, um, then they're going to come because now you have the push and the pull factor. And we have massive pull factors, not only things like our economy, uh, our you know, uh, rule of law to where people can call 911 and, and the cartels don't, the cops don't work for the cartels mostly. And, you know, not only do we have things like that, but we have policies that allow most people who come illegally to stay in our country and of course they're going to do that uh, because that's what people do that's what human beings do human beings want something better all the time we want peace we want um, you know liberty we want economic opportunities and that's what people are going to do if your policies encourage it our policies encourage it and there therefore we're seeing uh, massive numbers of people show up and it's going to continue um, to show up. Uh, people are going to continue to do that as long as the policies are what they are. 
Uh, interesting. And Brandon Darby's with me. He runs our Border and Cartel Chronicles initiative. One thing that's interesting about this one is it seems like some Democrats are even speaking up and suggesting that there is uh, some schizophrenic messaging when it comes to coronavirus, that we need emergency coronavirus funding, but we're ending Title 42, uh, and that the we have a... Uh, we have a situation where there are a number of crises going on and that we're inviting more with our open borders. Is this something that's somewhat new or escalated, Brandon? Are you surprised by any of this? Or uh, is this a, is there anything bigger that we can take from this? Uh, yeah, I think, I think this is an issue of, of Democrats going too far uh, on a national level. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, like Democrats want Texas, but they run people who want to say, hell yeah, we're going to take your AR-15 and your AK-47. That isn't going to work in Texas, right? That doesn't work in communities that are primarily blue doggish, really. You know, that that's that's where I think a lot of Texas communities are. I think a lot of Texas Democrats, if you step outside of some inner city place, you know, uh, hipster nook in Houston or you step outside of Austin, um, and you go to the Democrats along the border, they're very conservative Democrats. You know, they voted against Wendy Davis. They, they're not into abortion. They're Roman Catholic. They're very conservative Democrats. Um, but this is a little too far, right? So what, that's why we're seeing, you know, border communities turn red and start to vote for more conservative candidates, even though they've historically been blue. Um, it's because it's, it's affecting their communities. People by the tens of thousands are coming across the border. They're getting quickly processed. Border patrol agents aren't able to patrol because they're taking care of these people in facilities and processing these large numbers. And then they're just getting released into these people's cities. And people are like, Hey, I'm okay with this. Like I, I want to be kind, I, but not, not at this level. But the problem is, is you can't, you can't have it and it not be at this level. That's the point because those push factors are so strong in so many places. We live in a really cold, brutal world. And, and the majority of our world is not a peaceful place. It is not a place where the rule of law exists. It is not a place where there's freedom for journalists. It is not a place where incomes are, you know, the economies are unstratified and people are, um, you know, there's a large middle class. The majority of our world is not a very kind place. And that includes the majority of our world that is south of our border. The majority of countries south of our border are not doing okay. And so those push factors are always there. It's all about our policy. Let me ask you about what's happening south of our border because protesters torched the door to Mexican border state governor's palace after a wave of female abductions. Tell us, tell us about this story. Right. So a lot of women are going missing. We've seen this before. We saw this in, in uh, you know, El, the El Paso, Juarez metropolitan area on the Mexico side many years ago. Uh, when the cartels begin to fight, um, people start going missing and people get killed. And, and some of those people who show up with cartels are, are all about business. But a lot of the people who are attracted to that are psychopaths or sick people because they get to kill. And so they're like, Hey, I got a chance to kill people. Like, and, and so that's what's going on is there's a lot of women going missing. There's a lot of people going missing and people in that community are getting mad. People in the Weber Leone are starting to get mad and they're saying, Hey, do something about this. And of course, Mexico, responds and says, 
oh, well, you know, a lot of these women voluntarily just left their homes. And it's like nobody believes that, right? It's, right. Like, it's like everyone who gets killed in Mexico, there, there's an old saying, and it says, in Mexico, they kill you twice. And what that means is, is, is if, if you, Alex Marlowe, went to Mexico, went to Tijuana, and to eat tacos or hang out or do whatever you were doing, and you got murdered, the government would almost certainly say, well, he was involved in the drug trade, even if you weren't. They just say it. Because then there's the belief that, ready for this, that the three to 400,000 human beings that have died in Mexico's drug war are all, well, well, that only affects those bad people. It doesn't affect me if I come as a tourist. But it's not true. It's not true. Like the vast majority of people who get killed in Mexico, Mexico just says, oh, they were, they were drug dealers. Even if you're not a drug dealer. So they kill you twice. So for Mexico to say, oh, these women just left, were unhappy and left their families. No, 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 no. Women are getting killed and women are getting murdered. And somebody in some group is taking them. Um, and we've seen this tons of times before. And Mexico respond and say, oh, well, you know, they were drug dealers or they just le- abandoned their families. We don't know where they are, but they just left. They were unhappy. And that's not the case. And I think people in Mexico are starting to get mad. We've We've posited for quite some time, and that's the kind of the basis of our Cartel Chronicles project, is that if we just shine light on what's happening in Mexico, it will have an impact and encourage people to stand up for themselves. It will, it will encourage people to call out cartels and to expose cartels and expose the public corruption related to cartels. And I think that that's the case. When, when someone takes these drastic actions and actually burns the door of a, of a you know, the, the governor's office right um I, I think that you know we need to tell people that story you need to say hey these people here's a small group of mexicans trying to stand up and do something about their community and it would normally just not even be in the news cycle uh, because our legacy media ignores it here a very interesting brandon darby our border and cartel chronicles director uh, brandon i can't help but ask do we have a sense of what uh, the next senator from pennsylvania dr oz would do in, uh, about these issues i think dr oz uh, would probably just kind of go along with the flow and uh, <laughs> and i think that that would that's probably his his mo from from what i can gather um, you you don't get the impression he's given a life dedicated a lifetime to deep thought about these uh, existential issues facing our country. I don't feel like he has no, but but to be fair, <laughs> and I'm not trying to be ugly to him. Um, to be fair, I I think most of our leaders on both sides. Let's just be honest. Like we've had times when the Republicans control Congress, and we've had times that when is the true. Do, and they don't fix the underlying issue. They just put these little patches in there and stick their finger in the dike. They don't fix it. You know, they don't fix the policies that encourage this. All the while they rail on it and, 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 um, and use it as a wedge issue to whip up voters in a primary session and season. And that's what they do. And, and, but the underlying issues can be addressed, but they're not addressed. Um, you know, if, if Democrats were able to ram through Obamacare, then they are able to ram through immigration reform right at the time. They didn't. They chose not to. Um, they just prolong the problem because it whips us up and it makes us upset. It makes us fight with each other. And then they get more votes. And that's what they do. I got American parts. I got American faith. 
That's all for today's show. Thanks so much to producers Haley and Greg Eben who put everything together and all of you who picked up Breaking the News, who have subscribed to the podcast, left a five-star review. Anything you can do to help us out is something I appreciate very deeply. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Mm-hmm.